Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. We're now in week 10 of our fall 2020 podcast. My name is Chip Oscarson. I'm a former co-director of International Cinema back in the podcast seat. And I'm joined here today by Quinn Meekham, Associate Professor in the Political Science Department and Coordinator of the Middle East Studies Program. Professor Meekham is a longtime supporter and contributor at IC. Uh, Welcome, Quinn, to the podcast. Thanks very much, Chip. Now, Quinn, I understand that your love and interest of film has led you to creating a YouTube channel, Your Buddy Quinn, with two N's, where you review masterworks of international cinema. How many do you have up there now? Uh, Yeah, this summer I I put up uh, introductions to 15 works of international cinema, uh, Europe, Asia, uh, all over the place. Yeah, that's, that's great. So I encourage our listeners to go check that out. Uh, also joining us today is Professor Seth Jepson, Assistant Professor in the Classics Program and a specialist in classical, especially Greek drama. Welcome, Seth, to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. The three of us form a somewhat unlikely discussion group, uh, but both Quinn and Seth bring unique perspectives to bear on the theme this week about the challenges to democracy. Uh, it's a theme that's running parallel to the Kennedy Center's theme of the semester. Originally, the series was going to include more films, but it was a kind of a victim in some ways to the changes that were wrought by COVID on the semester schedule. But we do have these two films, and the two films that are going to be inspiring our discussion today are first, the 2019 documentary about the work of contemporary French economist Thomas Piketty, Capital in the 21st Century, directed by Justin Pemberton, And then secondly, the 1977 film adaptation of Euripides' play Iphigenia, directed by Michaelis Kakogiannis, starring Irena Pappas as Clytemnestra. And we'll get to a little bit more on that uh, in a minute. I thought we'd start with some overall impressions of the films, and then um, I'd like for us to spend time talking about how these films intersect in maybe some interesting ways. Quinn, we'll start with you. What was your take on capitalism in the 21st century and how it intersects with the state of the democracy in the world that we see today? Uh, so Thomas Piketty wrote this book in, in 2014 called Capital in the 21st Century. It's probably the most famous and perhaps most influential book in economics over the past decade. You know, it's it's unlikely in general for books in economics to be made into films. So I was delighted that uh, this one did uh, get a film adaptation. It's a documentary, but does a very, very nice job, both in terms of following Piketty's narrative, uh, providing visuals and great uh, set of interviews with a variety of economists and risk management experts and others. This is a film that helps us understand how the world economy has evolved, sometimes through through major shifts over the past decades and even centuries. And the core argument of the book and also subsequently of this film is that uh, over time uh, in history, capital has sometimes accumulated in the hands of a very few people. And when it does that, it leads to gross inequality in society. Piketty argues, going through his his historical process tracing, that uh, we are in a place in 2020 now where we're seeing, again, a very, very high concentration of capital. And capital, essentially, in his terms, just means wealth and wealth that can then be used as investments. And the high concentration of capital in the 21st century in the title of the film uh, has some big implications for the way that people interact socially. Uh, It has big implications for class relations and ultimately uh, I think really important implications 
for the great democratic experiment of this country and many other countries. So Piketty is not without his critics. There are a lot of people that that might argue that Piketty's critique of of this concentration of capital does ignore some of the ways in which capital is critical to economic growth. And his critique of capital accumulation is a little bit overly simplistic, but I think this film really brings to light some things that are very difficult to see from uh, a micro individual level perspective, but uh, are clear from his data uh, over the the course of economic history and looking at the, the global cases that he looks at. The one thing I'll say for now is that this film does raise a really substantive critique of the functions of democracy under conditions of extreme inequality. And this is a critique that I'm deeply sympathetic to. Typically, democracy uh, is thought of as a flattening or equalizing force in the way that people get to determine their own destiny. One person, one vote is a very fundamental function of democracy and principle of it. But when you get into a world where there is extreme inequality and money can be used to influence political outcomes, which it always has been, then one dollar, one vote is very different than the one person, one vote. Because when you have millions and millions of dollars essentially influencing your democracy from one individual or from a very small group of individuals, it leads to real distortions in democratic outcomes. And so that's that's a critique this film brings up that I think everyone needs to hear and understand and would highly recommend that you see the film. Well, perhaps anticipating a little bit where we might be going with uh, Iphigenia, one of the things that I think the, the film helps to bring out as well is the potential problem that capitalism presents to pursuit of the common good, right? That the the assumption is that if we can kind of harness the innate you know, greed of, you know, self-interest is maybe the better word of, of individuals that a capitalistic, you know, system can, you know, can provide a maximum amount potentially of freedom for individuals to pursue, you know, their own self-interest, which ideally helps the common good. But this film seems to critique that, right? That that's, that's an assumption that's probably not borne out by the, by the data. It does critique that. um, And I think it makes some very good points there. Just a, a very, contemporary example that I'm thinking of in Chile, the southern cone of of South America, Chile uh, transitioned to a democracy through an agreement with the military in in 1980. So it's been a democracy now for about 40 years. And it has evolved into one of the most unequal societies in the world, uh, in part because the constitution was set up that that really empowered those with capital, with privilege, uh, to have an undue influence over that. And, And this last year, there were mass protests as a result. Uh, people are, are very disenchanted in Chile with uh, their ability to both move uh, across classes, but also their ability to influence the system uh, in democratic ways. And and uh, one of the happy stories, at least at the moment, is that just this past couple of weeks, there was a referendum on a new constitution and Chileans overwhelmingly voted to revise the constitution that has the effect of flattening out some of those political opportunities and and uh, gives people a more access to institutions. And so one of the implications, Chip, that you mentioned there is that people should, under these conditions, be very frustrated. And when they, they're very frustrated, they, they end up really pushing for change. One of the ways of interpreting uh, what's been going on in the past number of years in the United States, for example, is that in fact, the growth of real wages has stagnated for 
several decades now, whereas we have enormous wealth accumulating at the very top, particularly in places like tech company uh, leadership and, and industries that don't require a large number of employees, but where capital kind of just accumulate. And, and that gap, which has increased dramatically in the United States and in many other countries, uh, is leading to deep political frustrations that are being manifest in the types of candidates we choose, the kinds of arguments we make, and the way we get involved in politics. Yeah. Seth, let's turn to you real quick and, and get kind of a, a similar overview of Iphigenia, and then let's start trying to, to bring these together a little bit. What, what was your take on this adaptation of Euripides' work? Well, I, uh, a lot of my research uh, focuses on ancient theater and performance, and so I'm always very happy to see one of these plays in action. I feel like a lot of times people encounter these plays primarily as texts that they're reading. And so, you know, it's wonderful to see some of these scenes come to life, especially Irene Pappas's uh, version of Clytemnestra. She really uh, carries this movie in a lot of ways. Oh, definitely. Her, uh, her encounter with Agamemnon. So uh, reading, the, reading the text in Euripides, you know it's a powerful scene, but seeing an, an actress of, of her caliber take that scene on and, and bring it to life just really is, is really spectacular. And so it was, it was great to see that uh, as an adaptation of a tragedy that they really embraced um, the, the genre of film, you know, some, some film adaptations of tragedy, you know, it's kind of just on a static set and it looks like you're, you're not doing much more than actually just watching a, watching the play, but they really did, did a great job with uh, bringing in the, uh, the, the army, seeing this huge mass of people, um, something that they couldn't do on the Athenian stage very well. But for a film, you can see the pressure that, uh, that the Argive army, that the Greek army uh, exerts on the situation. Um, we see moments like, you know, allowing Iphigenia to, to run away and she, you know, runs off into the woods and the scene looks very similar to where we saw the deer killed at the beginning of the film. And so uh, seeing, not just seeing it in performance, but also seeing, uh, seeing the, the way they embraced uh, the genre of film was really great for this. Yeah. Now they made some changes, some deliberate changes in adapting it. One is that they got rid of the chorus, of course, that doesn't, doesn't play a role in this adaptation, but the ending's a little bit different as well, right? I think that this film leaves a lot of ambiguity about her fate, whereas uh, in the play, and if I, you know, you're more expert on this than I am, but I understand that there's some question about Euripides' authorship at the end of the play, if, if he really wrote the end of the play, but she's saved at the last minute. Um, the film doesn't save her, or, or we don't know that she saved at any rate, right? We think that she's been killed. Yeah, I, I liked this choice that they made with the film because it seems to be more in keeping with what we think Euripides' original version of the play was. This play was produced uh, posthumously. It was one of the last things he wrote, and and it appears that a reviser w went through and either for that first performance of the play or for a subsequent one in the 300s BC, big parts of the text were changed. We know by looking at the, uh, the style and the meter of the language there that there were later editions. And the end of the play where we get this messenger speech that Iphigenia was, was rescued and was replaced by a deer at the altar this appears to be actually quite late. Uh, David Kovacs uh, argues that this is uh, from from late antiquity. So, you know, 
300s, 400s AD when that when that uh, particular part was was written. So it, it seems that the the way they do the end of of the film, where Iphigenia goes off to her death, and that's kind of how it ends, uh, we don't actually see that moment. That's in keeping with what our, our best guess is that Euripides originally had is the ending of the play. Yeah. So what what can we say about the role of Greek drama kind of in the political sphere in the original context, right? That what's the overlap between what's going on in politics in Greece and what's going on in the theater? Yeah, that's a great question. Democracy and theater develop at the same time, hand in hand in Athens. And for a lot of the time during what we call the golden age of Athens, the 400s BC, the Athenian government subsidized people's attendance at the theater. They would give them a stipend so that they'd be able to leave their daily work and come to watch the plays. And that's that's kind of remarkable that at this early stage that the first known example that we have of, of a democracy is uh, valuing the arts in this way and saying the art is essential to the uh, healthy function of a democracy. When you hear that, you might think initially like, oh, I bet these plays are going to be full of propaganda if the government is is paying for people to come and see these plays. But it's actually quite the opposite. Take a play like Antigone, for example, and the first thing you see is a female character, Antigone, coming out on stage and saying, the general was wrong. We should not be doing this and having like a real civic debate about how appropriate laws are and whether they should be obeyed and and under what circumstances one should disobey the law. And so far from being, you know, simple messages of, of propaganda, these plays really cut to the issue of of things that were important for citizens to to understand. And and a big a big part of this is the the nature of Athenian democracy that Athenian democracy was what we call a radical democracy, where it wasn't a representative democracy. Every citizen had the right to vote on on laws and and all sorts of issues like declarations of war. They didn't elect uh, representatives who did this. All of them voted on these things regularly. And so it was necessary for them to not just pick the best candidate, but they had to be able to decide these issues on their own. And the plays provide a way for discussing these things. Yeah. Okay. So if we're to start to try to bring together what might be going on in, in both of these, I think one of the things that stuck out to me in uh, Iphigenia was the tension that's that it explores between individual interest and the common good. Right. That Agamemnon is you know is forced to choose you know either his daughter or the army is is one way of thinking about that choice. What's both of your take on what? you know, the film or the play, I don't know if they're exactly the same thing or are trying to say about this. I found that quite a fascinating part uh, of Iphigenia. I was thinking a little bit about Aristotle as I watched the, the film. Aristotle in his, his book, The Politics, talks a lot about different types of, of governing systems. He, he thinks a little bit about what what a city should look like and, and, and what a, a good regime should look like. Uh, and he has concerns about democracy. So one of Aristotle's primary concerns, which is not terribly different than concerns of political philosophers in Europe or even the United States, is that the rule by the people could turn into something like rule by an angry mob, right? It, it could be 
could essentially force the government to do things that are not good choices because people might be emotional. They might have their own interest of, you know, the poor might put their own interests over the, the rich and majorities can essentially run over minorities. And so I think that there's an interesting thing going on in, in Iphigenia where you could, on the one hand, interpret the tension between Agamemnon's choice to sacrifice Iphigenia as you know, something that the audience should should have pity on that we we don't want him to have to do that, but that in part he's forced to do that because there is this angry mob that is shouting for her sacrifice. And so it could be seen as as a bit about the dangers of democracy. On the other hand, right, a, a second interpretation could be, in fact, that, that, as you said, Chip, that that is the common good. The common good is getting those ships to sail, getting people out in, in the water, and uh, that affects a lot more people than than this one sacrifice might affect in one family. And in that case, being forced in some ways to listen to the broader popular voice could be also interpreted as a good thing. Seth, what's your take on it? Yeah, this idea of the the uh, mob rule being an issue here in Iphigenia Aulis is an interesting one. And it's something that, that Euripides was really focused on towards the end of his career. The Opponents of Athenian democracy frequently uh, portrayed Athenian democracy this way. Since all citizens could vote on everything, uh, they they portrayed it as a system that was ruled by the by the mob, and they didn't think of this as a as a positive thing. And uh, in a handful of plays, Euripides addresses this directly. And when when Achilles comes in in the Greek. When Achilles comes on and is talks about what happens at the at the altar, where we see we see in the film uh, they act this out. It happens off stage in Euripides' play. He tries to oppose the will of the army, and they throw rocks at him and chase him off. He says, uh, "You know the the crowd, the many, is a terrible thing," and so you get this idea that it's dangerous. While while democracy. Is, is a very powerful tool. If people are listening to the wrong voices, it can be very dangerous. And for the Athenians, this, this was written towards the end of the Peloponnesian War, the war that they would lose to Sparta. And toward the end of that war, the Athenians had a number of moments when they could have made peace with Sparta, but were uh, whipped up by demagogues who led them to reject these peace offers, and they ended up losing this war. And so that's an important part of the historical context to consider here before the play. Yeah, Odysseus is, is one of these figures here. You get him in quite a different light than you get in, in the Odyssey, right? That he's the rabble rouser, that he sees that he can gain, you know, by, by kind of stirring this up. And this is a big aspect of one of the big changes in the film. Um, Odysseus isn't a speaking character in Euripides' play, but he plays a big role in the film and becomes kind of this, this mechanism through which the crowd is whipped up. It becomes this image of the demagogue who's able to get the crowd to, to force Agamemnon to sacrifice his daughter. So what's the takeaway for a 21st century audience, do you think, with this film? Putting these kinds of things in, in tension with each other, you know, what can we I mean? I guess we could read it through the lens of the 1970s, um, but I was really impressed in seeing this film. This is the first time I had seen it when we were getting ready for, to put the program together, how well this film has held up. I really felt like it was, you know, it was really gripping and it really kind of spoke to me. What's the takeaway? 
for me, there's there's two big takeaways here. And for the for the first one, I need to to go back and, and talk about a few terms in Greek that are important for understanding Greek tragedy. Um, this comes from uh, Simon Goldhill's book, Reading Greek Tragedy. He talks about how a lot of these plays, the the dramatic tensions functions on uh, the tension between friends and enemies. And the term for friend in, in Greek is philos. This term, it, we, it often is translated as friend, but it means more than that. It means someone to whom you have a reciprocal relationship of, of affection and help. And so it can be like family members and people who are related by marriage. And then for enemy, on the other hand, the Greeks had two different words for enemy. The first one was uh, polemios, which meant a, an enemy of the state, someone that you fight in war. The other word was ekthros, which means a personal enemy. And in the terms of Greek politics, where you had a number of city-states, polises that would fight against each other, an ekthros is an enemy within the same polis, someone who is your fellow citizen, but with whom you disagree and have grounds for like a reciprocal relationship of enmity. And a lot of these plays function by bringing these worlds of your, your friends, your philoi, and your ekthroi, your enemies within the same state together and showing ways where these, what should be distinct categories actually overlap. So for Antigone, for example, um, her brother Polynices is by definition a philos. He's her brother. He's a member of the family, but he has, uh, you know, done acts against the state. And so Creon wants to treat him as an ekthros and Antigone and Creon disagree on whether um, you should, when there's conflict, Antigone says you should default on the side of treating someone as a philos, protecting your your um, friends, your relations. Uh, Creon says you need to side on protecting the state. Well, we have a very similar kind of dynamic happening in this play. In that, going back to that scene between Clytemnestra and Agamemnon, she's seeing things in terms of supporting your your philoi and your your household, your oikos. And she says, you can't, you can't sacrifice a member of your household, and I'm not going to let you do that. Agamemnon sees this primarily as a question of, of loyalty to the state and sacrifice in order to for the, the greater good or the good of the state. And he says, no, I, I have to do this. And so we see that tension there uh, for Iphigenia's part in her final scene. She says that she's her her reason for accepting this sacrifice is to preserve her household. Says I'm going to die either way. If I do this, if I sacrifice, then my household is safe. And she's come to see Achilles as a philos, someone who would would have been connected to her by marriage. And she says he's a he's a philos, he's a friend, and I'm going to preserve him as well uh, for our. A, a message for for us today. Um, if we look at these Greek tragedies, one of the messages that they send is that if you continually are treating people as enemies instead of looking for ways to find common ground with them, it ends up it ends up destroying things. And right now we're at an interesting spot where people, you know, we we have you know these these different political parties, and the the rhetoric is getting. Um, 
to the point where people are, are no longer seeing people on the other side as ekthroi, as you know, enemies who are still within the state and we have to work together with them. But they're talking about calling people traitors and talking about acts of treason, trying to pr- portray people as enemies of the state and outside of the state. And that's actually very scary for, for democracy and something that can really tear a democracy apart happened in it for the Athenians. It happened for the Romans as well. So that was a big first takeaway. My second takeaway will be a little bit shorter. One thing that I thought in seeing this is uh, Iphigenia says that her life is that uh, a woman's life is less than a man's life and that, uh, you know, one man is worth a thousand women. And we see this kind of internalized misogyny that she has. And it made me think how, you know, going all the way back to Greek democracy, why is it that democracies in the Western tradition ask the most vulnerable people in society to sacrifice for society? It's been women and it's been minorities in, in our society that, uh, you know, it was written into the Constitution that black person is worth only three-fifths of a person. Why were they forced to sacrifice in this way for our democracy to work? That's another takeaway that I see for this, this moment in history from Iphigenia at Aulis. Yeah. Quinn, how about you? Yeah, when it comes to the Iphigenia, uh, I really appreciate Seth's uh, comments there, particularly about the way that we we treat each other in in, in democracy. A couple of uh, other things that, that I noticed. One is is that the army at various points in this film made me think about populism. Right, it made me think a little bit about the way that people do start to uh, demonize. Others, they might demonize elites, right? Achilles and his plea to the army was was just very, very quickly shut down, and and that kind of energy, I, I think, creates a lot of uh, of political excitement, but it it does have a lot of damage in the same way that Seth was talking about. The second thing for me in that film, I saw uh, Agamemnon and Clymenestra and Iphigenia's pain. Uh, as a very deep, deep personal pain, right? That they had strong preferences about an outcome. Those preferences were not uh, respected by the majority. And so one of the the general challenges in any democracy is that democracies are not very good at calibrating intensity of preferences. If I was a member of the army and I wanted to sail off to Troy, maybe my preference was moderate. But if I'm at Agamemnon and need to make a decision here about my own household, that is a very, very intense preference that he has not not to sacrifice his daughter. And yet minorities with intense preferences uh, will tend to always lose uh, in the face of majorities with weak preferences in democracy. And that's uh, something that we need to be better at solving. And one of the ways that we solve for that is by establishing clear rights for minorities and making sure that on particular issues where people have very, very strong preferences in a minority group, that they have institutions where the, by those, those preferences can be expressed and sometimes maybe even have veto power on other things. Uh, when it comes to, to the Piketty film, I, I really do think that this, this film is extremely timely. I think that everybody should watch it. And uh, I'm worried, maybe not quite as much as Piketty is, but I'm worried uh, about the trends that this film demonstrates very clearly. I think that we are in trouble in this country and in other places with the escalating inequality. I think that the more uh, economic inequality you have, the harder it is to feel equal in a society. 
if you're in the poorer categories. And uh, that's how people are feeling in this country. Uh, we're going to have, at the end of the election this coming week, we're going to have some very, very disappointed people, regardless of, of who wins the election. And those folks are going to feel profoundly disenfranchised. They are going to worry about whether their voice is treated equally. They're going to worry about the way that they integrate into this country in the future. And so uh, the political economy of this suggests that the, the flatter your society is, uh, the more likely you're going to be to be invested in the political system as well and feel like others in that political system are also your equals. And so we do, we do worry about this. And I think we're in for a wild ride over the next couple of, of decades. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Quinn Meekin and Seth Jeffson, too, uh, for being with us on From the Booth today. Uh, you've had some really uh, interesting insights in bringing these two, two films together. Thank you. Thank you, Chip. Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Every week this semester, specialists and film lovers alike discuss the film streaming at IC on this podcast, so please tune in. To get access to the film streaming at IC this semester, please visit ic.byu.edu and follow the link on the splash page to sign up with your current BYU Net ID. The podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they don't necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff of the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support as well. Until next week, keep streaming.